Would you open your Bibles again this morning to the two places we've been going to so far in our little series on the challenge of separation. I'm going to end the series today. And we go to Exodus 33 and 2 Corinthians 6. Those are the two verses that we have been using. Now, in Exodus 33, beginning in verse 12, Moses is talking to God. You know the story well. And God has told him that you have found grace in my sight, Moses. And Moses said, if I have, then let me know who you are so that I can continue to find grace in your sight. Well, listen, here's what he said in verse 16. For how would people know that I have found grace in your sight, I and your people? Is it not that you go with us? Now, we've already said a lot of things about that. But let me just tell you once again so we get started this morning. The fact that God is with us is also the fact that his grace and his favor is with us. Whatever God is attached to, whatever God allows himself to be attached to, whatever he brings into his presence, whatever he lays hold of, he does because he wants to, and something like that finds favor. Now, when he calls you out of darkness to be his child, and that he takes his residence, you become a temple, and he lives inside of you. You have found grace in the sight of God, not because you earned it, not because you have talents and abilities that God needs, for he needs nothing. But he has brought you out of darkness because he has a plan and a purpose for you. And he wants you to know that his presence with you is grace, is favor. And it's precisely because of that, to maintain that favor and that grace, that you must become separate from the world that he must judge. Now, not everybody has God with them. Ephesians 2 talks about a people without God and without hope. Without God and without hope is a despaired life. You have nothing. You're full of the things of this world. There's a lot of noise and glamor and a lot of busyness going on in your life, but you have nothing. And when you die, you die with nothing because you're without God. So the fact that God wants to associate with you and have fellowship with you is probably the most essential need that anybody could ever have in a human life. Because without God, you have nothing. You live and you breathe and you function and you go and you do and you buy and you sell, but you have nothing. Your life is quite empty and you become aware of that. I think the most empty people I can think of today must be atheists who say they don't believe there is a God. But God, when God made man, he made him to worship something and every man seeks something to be God. But notice in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 17, well, it begins in 14 by saying, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers and then begins describing how could there be fellowship between you with God, with something that hates God or is against God. God will not be with you in that. Didn't God say once he will be with you as long as you're with him? If you honor him, he'll honor you. If you reject him, he'll reject you. Just throwing that out, because he said, be not unequally yoked together. Now he means that obviously. Verse 17, wherefore, come out from among them 
and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And he said, I will receive you. Now, if you turn that around the other way, which no commentator I've read yet wants to, it becomes very dire. If you are unwilling to come out from among them, if you are unwilling to leave the unclean things and the wicked things and the dark things and the sinful things in this world, if you are unwilling to let go of your hold, and sometimes they have quite a strong hold on your life. God knew that when he saved you. But he wants to manifest himself to you as the most necessary need in your life for whom you would give up anything and everything you have to to maintain a good relationship with God. But you'll have to make a decision because he said, you come out, you separate yourself from. It's a matter of choice that you have to make. Here are the facts. This is the bigger picture. Now, what are you going to do about it? Come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. That means association, be involved with the unclean thing. Then he said, and I will receive you, one. Secondly, I will be a father unto you. And thirdly, he said, you shall be my children, my sons and my daughters. Now, if you want to be his family, if you want him to be your heavenly father, and if you want him to receive you, it's a very simple matter of you making the right choice. It is that simple. You look and see what he's going to judge all out there that he calls evil. And you realize that if you're a part of that, you'll be judged with it. First Corinthians 11. So you recognize as you begin to learn that this is what God is against. And you're a big part of that. You were by nature drawn to that and you indulge yourself in the world in this ways and its lusts and its desires and its contempt for God. Oh, you didn't see it before, but now you do. And so the challenge is, the challenge of separation is, will you come away from that and find your peace and joy in me? You will if you come out. Or you can just memorize this as a verse of scripture and go on with your life and assume that God is with you because you've memorized scripture and you go to church. Because a lot of Christians do that. Oh, I go to church. They always say that. Oh, I go to church. But the question is, will you divorce yourself? Will you break away yourself from the world and its uncleanness? Will you turn around and seek after God? For that's a challenge too. He said in the Bible, not many seek after God. They say they want to know him, but they seek him not to know him. He is available to be known. And sometimes he will let you struggle in this seeking to him to see just how determined you really are. He said, come out from among them and be separate. Turn yourself away from all these unclean things. Now, Themes like this, verses like this, ideas like this run throughout Scripture. For example, in Leviticus 26, he says, And I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Let me ask you a question. Just want you to think about it. How important is it for the reality of that to be in anybody's life, that you are his child and he is your God? Would that have any effect on your life? Would that change anything? Would that make any kind of difference? 
Would it affect you any? Well, now, listen, we all know this. Churches are full of people that don't seem to be affected by that. They know that's in the Bible. Sometimes they preach it. But it doesn't seem like that all about you being his and he being your God has much of an effect on your life. But it seemed like it should, especially when you read all the things in this book about the people who have no God and who worship that which is not a God and how they all disappear and are never known again. They have no hope. They have no hope. And we who say that he is our God should have a big effect on our life. The Bible speaks of trembling. Malachi says, if I am your God, remember God's complaint to the Jewish people was that they dishonor him. They don't like what he told them to do. They do it. They don't like it. Instead of offering an unblemished animal in sacrifice, they take one of the sick out of their flock, which they don't want to get rid of anyway, and they kill a sick animal and sacrifice that to God. And God said to them, if I am your Lord or your God, why do you treat me like that and sacrifice something of indifference to me? He said, why don't you feed that to your governor? Well, he would disown you if you did that, but you act like God must keep you anyway and, and that I was always surround you and cover you and because I'm God and I can do marvelous things, I'll always make sure you're all right. But it hadn't turned out that way. They went into captivity and then they're still without God today. I've been there once and they are without God. There's a few that aren't, but majority are without God. Really have no deep interest in it. So what kind of effect should it have if we say we are the people of God or he is our God? What kind of an effect should that have upon us? Remember the song that we sang in Jeremiah 7, 23? Obey my voice and I will be your God. And how many people would say so? Maybe a lot of people say, I don't need a God. Atheists say that. So what's the big deal about you being my God? What advantage is it to me that you are my God? Because I am sure I am no advantage to you. But what advantage is God to me? What difference does it make? Is it really such a big deal to be so concerned about whether or not God is your God? Well, I think there comes a time in your life you need to settle that. I don't think you need to think about it all the time or have to wonder all the time, but you need to settle in your heart, is he really your God? On the terms that he gives you, the conditions that he lays out before you that makes you his people, are you there? Again, Jeremiah 7, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and it shall be well with you. Well, we could use a whole bunch of that. It will be well with you. Wouldn't it be nice at this time of life for everything to be well with us? And he says, if you will obey me, this is what having me as God will mean to you. You have somebody who can make it well with you, who can cause it to be well with you. Only one can. 
and that's God. And without him, all you've got are the systems of this world, the insurance company, the medicines and the banks and the hospitals and whatever man can invent. That's all you got. And when that doesn't work, then everybody then turns to God. Oh, God. But all they have without God are what is often called the gods of this world. That is what people turn to, trust in, and count on. Whether it is a bank or a drug or an operation or something else that God will do. But people, well, they don't serve that kind of a God. Their God is not able to do that, they say. And yet God says, if you'll obey my voice, I will be your God and you you, among all the people of the earth, you'll be my people. And how will it be known that you're my people? You will be separate from all the world. all those other things that people are putting their trust in and are worshiping, I'm going to draw you away from that. I'm going to draw you to me, and you're going to find in me what you never found out there. And your life will begin to take on peace and joy because you have something that the world doesn't matter what the world says or thinks, the world cannot do this. But God can, and you've made him your God. That's wonderful. Remember the new birth? Let me read for you about what Ezekiel said about the new birth. This is good. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25, he said, Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. Now, who does this? Doesn't God do this? Can anybody else do this? Is there a drug that can do this? Is there an institution that can do this? Is there some crafty individual of great wisdom in this world that can do this? There is nothing in existence anywhere that can change a human life but one. Only God can. For he said, and this is the picture of what he was talking to Nicodemus, you read in the scripture, this is what a transition from an old to a new is all about. This is how it works. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean from all your filthiness. I will put a new heart and a new spirit within you. And notice he said, and I will cause you to walk in my ways. In verse 27, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. No wonder Jeremiah said, obey my voice and this is the way your life will be. God has to initiate the whole thing in the first place. He's the one who has to put in you life. For the Bible says he is life. He gives life. Nobody else can. He is the creator of life. Life can only come from him. It starts with him, it ends with him. He is the Alpha and the Omega. There is no other. And he alone can take a ravished soul, a destitute person like us, and transform it into something that not only can contribute to society, but can honor and glorify God and can live a fruitful life. Only God can do that. Whoever he identifies himself with, that's what he does. 
Now, again, this is where the church gets real quiet. I'm not saying you, but I'm saying the bigger one out there, all the others. If God is doing this, if this is what he does, then you shall know who a Christian is by their what? By their fruit, their manner of life. No, we're not perfect yet. We are growing. We do stumble along the way. That's part of it. But we don't go back and we don't give up. And we don't take for granted that we're saved and we don't just take for granted anything because we have to make our calling and election sure. We put our hands on the plow. We never look back because we've got a mission. We've got a focus because God holds us to this. But what he brings us into as we show him our devotion to him. Oh man, he brings us green pastures and still waters. And then that wonderful verse in Psalms 23 and verse 4 about righteousness for his namesake, for his namesake, who he is. For he is the almighty God. He is the one who is I am. And because I started this work in you, because of my name being involved with you, I'm going to finish. I'm going to lead you in paths of righteousness. What about all the church folks that don't want? Then he said, I will lead you in paths of righteousness. I will sprinkle clean water on you and I will cleanse you. And if you're still there in verse 28, and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and in this way you shall be my people and I will be your God. And he went on to say, and I will save you. I will save you. I will rescue you. You are identified with me. What I have, you have. What you have, I have. We are his and he is ours. Remember Jesus said, I and them, thou and me, they and us. Together. So what God has, he gives to us. What we have, we give to him. Our walk is a walk of holiness. The Bible speaks of the fact that there are many, many people who call upon God, who refer to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God, the people who refer to him as their God. And the Bible says that because of the way they live, God is ashamed for them to be called their God. It'd be like him saying, this is in Hebrews 11. He said, I am not your God. Are y'all with me so far? God is saying, don't say that I am your God when you live like the world. I am not your God. There is a God of this world. There are gods that people worship. Paul said in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, he said, When you knew not God, you did service unto them which by nature are not gods. Then he mentioned you observe days and months and years and weeks and traditions and things. You observe those things because somehow or another you're counting on benefiting from that like it's some kind of God. He said, they are not gods. I am the only true God. The Almighty God says that. And he is not ashamed to be identified with his people who struggle, because he's referred to them in Hebrews 11 and verse 16, the people who struggled and were destitute and so forth, but they never gave up their faith. They never quit trying. They never turned away from him. And he said, God is not ashamed to be called their God. 
which implies that there is a certain amount of people who call God their God, but they live like he doesn't exist because they don't honor him. They don't recognize him in their life, in their choices, in the way they live. It's like, oh, God is more or less a concept, an idea. There is a deity in heaven that has a place called heaven where he lives, and that's about it. And church is kind of what we get together and do, and we mention him and Jesus and try to come out of here with a better moral barometer than we had when we came in here. Maybe we can do better, be better people, which is about what Christianity is anyway, just better people. It has nothing to do with God. It's like they've never learned his ways. They've never turned to him. What's behind the word God? When people historically, back from the beginning of time, when people speak of God, what are they speaking of? Are they not speaking of some deity, something beyond themselves? Why would man need God? Why would he need a God? Because every human being realizes how fragile he is in this world. He is incapable of making things happen that he needs to happen, like making it rain. He can't do it. He can't even stay awake. He has to sleep. The least little bit of a bug will fail him and he'll be down. And so he recognizes that he's quite fragile in this world. And he needs something beyond himself and bigger than himself who is able to perform for him and make his life better and bring goodness into his life. Now, he needs something like that. Sometimes people worship the sun. It's always there. It's always bringing warmth. It makes the earth grow. That must be the sun god. And then there's the moon and whatever the moon does. It's a moon god. The Egyptians had gods. They had a, a lion like this here with a bird's face or a man's face or something. And they worship it. Man has created gods. Man makes statues and gods. Because he has this particular need of a supreme being that he can look upon for help or for protection. It is an inherent need in man. He was made to need something beyond himself. He didn't know what to call that. He didn't know what to call God or a God. Some nations had many gods. They had all kinds of gods. Paul spoke of one of them at Mars Hill. He said, I see you have many gods. You've got one here that says to the unknown God. He doesn't have a name in case you left one out. And there was this inherent fear that anything that had God had a certain amount of awe about it. And you didn't want to offend these gods. You know, they thought if you offended a God, then you might have drought or poverty or sickness or death or something would happen. So, you know, to appease these gods, sometimes they sacrifice their own children. Because behind every God is a demon, devils. Paul spoke that in 2 Corinthians 10. He said, you know, they sacrifice the devils in the marketplace, all these things they offer up their food to and all these deities. They're just devils. But man needs something beyond himself. The king needed something he could pray to before he goes to war to help him fight against his enemy. They had a little priest. Some of these nations did. They had 
priest who would advise the king. Ahab had his, remember the story, and put a horns on her head and say, the Lord says you go forth and you'll win the battle like this and you'll ram them and all of that kind of stuff. And the kings would often go to war because of the advice he got from his religious leaders who call upon one of the gods. But this was man's inherent need. He needed God. He needs a God. He needs something. But his weakness was he needed something that he could see. So he made a God. He created a God. Remember the picture, the story of Aaron in the Exodus? If you don't, let me just update you. Remember Moses has gone up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Hadn't been heard of as far as they know. He went up there and died. He was pretty old anyway. 80-year-old man climbing the hill that high might not make it back. So while he's gone, these people who were fresh out of Egypt, and for 400 years they had watched how they worshipped and watched how they did all their vulgar things at these lusty meetings or lusty adventures they had with their gods, and they saw that, and that was still in their minds. These people are fresh out of deception, fresh out of a pagan country. And when Moses hadn't come back, Remember Aaron, they wanted a God. So he said, give me those earrings you got from the Egyptians. And they took all that and make a molded calf, formed a calf and whatever they did. It doesn't tell us how they did it, how long it took. It just said that they made this golden calf. And Aaron said, this is your God. This is who led us out of Egypt. And the people looked at that thing. I would think they know it just got made. It had never been before, but the dumb thing was an earring turned into a calf. And they began to bow down to it. Whatever the name of it was, Apis or something like that, is some kind of a strange name that they had. And they began to honor this thing as though it led them out of Egypt. And they just watched it get made. Turn to Isaiah 44. We, I've got to deal with this. Uh, Isaiah 44. There's so much folly and foolishness here. Beginning in verse 9. Bear with me. And I want you to bear with me for just a little bit as we read some verses of Scripture to show you how foolish these people were in making themselves a God as well as how foolish our society is for rejecting the only God. Because if you reject the one true God, I promise you, you will replace him with something else that you worship. It will be idols, and we're warned about idols in the Bible. But verse 9, they that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit, and they are not their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. Who's formed a God or molden a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and so forth. Then he begins talking about how they cut down a tree. Verse 16, he burns part of the tree, and part of the tree he eats the flesh, which he roasted on the fire that he got off that tree. Let me just break it down for you. We cut down a tree, and we drag this tree to the craftsman. The craftsman cuts the branches off of it and trims it off and lays the branches over here because with the branches, he's going to build a fire to keep himself warm and he's going to build a fire so he can cook his supper. 
And he takes what's left over here after he trims it down. It's called the residue here in the scripture. He takes what is left and by his craftsmanship, he begins to make him a nose and some kind of an eyeball and, a, and some kind of a big wild looking tooth or horn on his head or some kind of ignorant thing. And, and he carves it all out and he takes this dumb thing and he nails it to the floor so it won't fall over. Because this particular God can't even stand up. So they nail a thing to the floor, and then they decorate it and put gifts around the bottom of it, and they worship it. Now, you think, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. It is the dumbest thing we've ever heard of. It is. But they decorate the thing. Listen, verse 17, and the residue thereof he maketh a God, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it and worshipeth it and prayeth unto it and saith, deliver me for thou art my God. And of course you want to say, time out, time out, time out. Before you holler at this thing to help you, well, you realize you just cut it down while ago in a tree. It was a living, breathing thing. It was doing well. And you cut the thing down, and now you made a God out of it and said, oh, deliver me. How can this be? It's a tree. It's a piece of wood. It is a stick. It is a big stick. And you're bowing down to this stick, and you say, oh, whatever thou art name is, old stick, deliver me. And of course, God is taking his liberties here in Isaiah by saying how foolish this all is. How foolish it is. If you just go from right there a little bit to the right in Jeremiah chapter 10, I'll tell you what's going on right now. This is pretty close to this morning and especially this week. Verse 2, thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. Does your Bible say something like that? For the customs, are we together? For the customs, I'm emphasizing that, of the people are vain. For one cutteth the tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the woodman with an axe. They deck it with silver and gold and put a little angel on the top of it and hang little balls and little silver and gold things all around the side of it and throw their gifts under it. No, it doesn't say that. Excuse me. They deck it with silver and gold and they fast it with nails and with hammers that it move not. Wow. Sound like a Christmas tree. But that's man. He looks at that tree and somehow, whether he wants to hear me say it or not, he imagines God in all of this because the birth of Jesus and somehow the tree fits into his birth. Does it? Does it? Well, the manger was made out of wood. Well, I can't help you. When you're without God, you do think like that. You can't see what God is saying. Isaiah 45, the very next Chapter over in verse 20 said, They have no knowledge that set up wood of their graven images and pray unto a God that cannot save. That thing can't help you. It can't speak. It can't move. It can't talk. It can't think. 
You have to nail it to the floor. Somebody has to hold it up because if you don't, this God will fall down. He might even break. You remember the story of Gideon? You all have heard of Gideon, haven't you? Judges chapter 6, Gideon was called of God as a judge to deliver Israel. And to show that God had done it, he put out that fleece. You have to read it in Judges 6. And then God said, here's what I want you to do. This is how you're going to gain your notoriety. Tonight, I want you to go into the groves. Now, the groves would be where the idols were set up. And there was one big one called Baal. He said, I want you to go knock Baal over and cut down all the groves. Cut down all these Ashtaroths and Asteras and whatever they call them. I just want you to cut them all down. This is what they worship. They would go to these things and worship. Cut them down. So he did. He went there that night with some of his friends and they knocked old Baal over. Can you imagine one man just roughing up a God and throwing the God down and, and just throwing him in the floor and then going there and cutting all these other gods down? Just cut them down. And the people the next day found out that Gideon had done it, and they said, you're going to die. So they came, and his dad said, now, wait a minute, now, wait a minute. Joash was his father's name. He said, will you plead for Baal? Will you plead for Baal? Will you save him? If he be a god, let him plead for himself, because one has cast down his altar. That's pretty reasonable, isn't it? You've been worshiping this thing and following this. You've been counting on this system of man your whole life to get you through. At the end of life, you're counting on it. It's just like saying, you know, you buy a cancer policy. Seems like people are so fearful of that. Let me ask you a question. Can an insurance company with any policy keep you from getting cancer? Then what'd you buy? Can you buy flood insurance? See, when you buy flood insurance, that means that the insurance company has the power to keep a flood away from your house. If it rains 68 inches in one hour, it'd just go around your house. It wouldn't even get the yard wet. It'd just go around over top, just like the Red Sea, just go somewhere else. Why? Because I've got insurance company. And I've got flood insurance I got the fire insurance. I got the health policy. I got all these things that my hopes are set on. And yet, there's not a single policy, nothing that man has ever devised can keep from happening the thing he says it won't happen. You die with it, you die without it. The only hope you have is God who can control nature. Yet people don't believe that. They've been talked out of that in church through their years in church and going to church and religion and basing what God is on religious people, they have talked themselves out of anything about God being what they need. I don't need that. If going to church is going to make me like him, I don't want that. But they have a God. Trust me, everybody in the world has something they're counting on, especially towards the end of their life, everybody. If it's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're living a vain life. Because only God has life, times, and circumstances in his hand. Anything outside of him is vanity. 
Now, if we don't honor him like that, if our daily life is not a conscious, God-conscious life, then we have to go back and ask ourselves, is he with me? Is he dwelling in me? Is his residence in my life? Is the divine nature spoken of in 2 Peter 1, is it in here? There's no more essential question for me to answer and get right than that one. Is he or not? Because outside of God, there is nothing. There's nothing. It's all over without God. And when he offers to us, I will be your God. And you will be my people. That's the answer. That's what I must want. I must somehow be inspired of God to see my greatest, great need for that. I need that. I don't need the gods of this world. I don't need whatever they had. Remember Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18. How long, he said, will you halt? Elijah said, how long will you halt between two opinions? If God is God, then serve him. If Baal is God, let's serve him. But let's find out who's God. So you go first, Baal, all of his priests, nothing happened. Elijah was by today's standard. He was politically incorrect in that he goaded him. Maybe your God's asleep. Holler louder. They even cut themselves. Look what we're doing, oh, baby. In vain trying to get something that is not to do something that can't. How much of a wasted life is that? Who told them there was a God that you could carve out of a stone by some craftsman and then the thing becomes a deity? It's really not a deity, but you think it's a deity. Look what people do with pictures. You go in some churches and they got pictures in the sanctuary or statues. There's a statue like this or one of the apostles, I suppose. And you begin to transfer your desire for these things to be a God because you ask them for help. That's what you do. How many times do Catholics say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. I told a nun one time, if you're still a sinner, God doesn't hear you. Excuse me. John 9, 31, now we know that God heareth not sinners. You keep confessing you're a sinner, you're wasting your time praying. And she said, you know, I've never looked at that before. Of course, I'm thinking it'd really be good to look at that. It'd be a real good thing to look at that. Holy Mary, Mother of God. They pray to her because nobody would have more influence on a son than a mother. My goodness, who taught you that? They came up to Jesus one time in a crowd in Luke 11, and they said, blessed is the womb that must have been a nun. <laughs> blessed is the womb that bore thee and the breast of which thou hast nursed, or perhaps thou hast sucked. And he said, yea, rather. Yea, rather, Jeremiah 7. No, that's not what he said. He said, yea, rather, he said, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. That's who's blessed rather than my mother. 
your mother and your brethren are waiting for you outside. And he said, who are my mother and my brethren? In Mark 3, who is my mother and my brethren? But they that do the will of God. Wow. So he didn't put much stock in worshiping anything outside of God, did he? He said, I come for one reason, to do the will of my Father in heaven. I want to make sure my life is so maintained that God is always in favor with me. I don't want any sin in my life because sin separates between you and God. Your Bible says that in Isaiah 59. I want God to be on my side. I want him to be with me. I want him to be for me. And when Elijah hollered at those guys to make it work, they quit by evening. Remember Elijah said, kill the bullock, lay it in pieces, 12 big stones, 12 big stones for 12 tribes of Israel. Lay the bull on there. Now, a bucket, I mean a tub or whatever, a big barrel, another barrel, another barrel. There was a drought. Boy, this is stuff here. Another barrel until water was running in the trenches all around, just wet and soppy. Isaiah got back and prayed, and the fire of heaven came down. The Bible said, consume the offering, the stones, and the dust of the stones. Whoa. Now that is God. It's like God going, it's about that hard for him to do, just like that. And came down, and those big rocks went, and the little bit of dust that might have flown off the top, God went, and the animal was, and the stones went, and the dust went, and there was nothing left. The Almighty God is a consuming fire. And he displayed his majesty. Who else could do that? You couldn't get the finest redwood tree in California, take it to a CNC machine, just trust me with that, a big CNC machine, and create the most perfectly created image out of the biggest tree ever made, the highest it could be, even while it's still in the ground. You couldn't do it while it's in the ground. And when you got done with this magnificent work of art, it can't even blow its nose. And if the wind, if God goes, the little enough wind, that thing goes, boom, on the ground. What a God. Our God, not that tree. Listen to me this morning. You think of all the things that people worship this morning. Or all the things that people count on. I think of my daddy who was a Catholic and he would do his rosary and say all those things with his rosary while he's looking at some statue or in some little chapel in the hospital. Chapels are places where people really hurt and go. I mean, they're really, really, really hurting. Sometimes they're dying and they don't know what to do and it's a place of solace and quiet, but so often there's a picture, there's that picture of a Gentile Jesus and they get down there to pray and they begin to pray to that picture. They wouldn't admit it, but they, oh, Jesus, don't you see? Oh, don't you know? Don't you care? And 
That's why God never had painters and sculptures in Israel. They learned all about idols and things to worship from the heathen. And that is precisely why God removed them from the land because they were so corrupted by these idols left over by the people they did not destroy that those people and their religion and their idols destroyed God's people. They corrupted them until God had to remove them. In fact, if you'll bear with me just a bit, look in Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44 and verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, and besides me, what? There is no other God. Verse 8. Fear ye not, neither be afraid of them. I have told thee from that time, and have I not declared it? You are even my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Chapter 45 again. We were just there. Verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. People make other gods. Today, while I'm speaking, they still make gods. They may not be images and statues. It may be their bank account. It may be their new home, their career, or whatever else it could be. Maybe they're counting on something for protection or for relief besides God. Maybe they have rejected God, wouldn't trust him for a nickel, but they cast all their hopes and dreams into the systems of man. And those systems, whether anybody wants to admit it or not, become their gods. That's who they count on for relief and for help. They complain about the Christian God, but the systems of man is all they have. Who else, as I've said before, what other kind of profession in the world could tell you as a woman to disrobe? That a doctor wants to do a certain procedure on you at a certain place that, oh, but you do it because you yield to that because your hope there. If I don't let this happen, then this is what could happen to me. Therefore, I'm willing to yield to this because it's what I'm trusting in. And the idea that you're going to trust in God who made your body to fix whatever's wrong, oh, no, that kind of preaching scares me. One of us is really off key here. Somebody is really wrong. Either God is what he said he was, or he's misleading us. Either he can, or he can't. Either he will, or he lied to us. If he said he would, he will. But if you say, well, I'm not sure that he will, it's just like 1 John said, then by our unbelief, we call God a liar. I don't want to be guilty of that, do you? I don't. I really don't. Again, in chapter 45, verse 6, he said that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord there is no other. You can get that in Deuteronomy 4.35. You can get it in Deuteronomy 4.39. And Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Lord, the Lord our God is one Lord. There is no other. Our choice is very simple. We have one choice, one God. 
only by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and by the convicting power of God's Spirit will we ever see that our loyalty and our allegiance as church members hasn't been to God. In fact, we've been a little bit unsettled and uncertain whether God will do what he said. We want him as God to do what he said. We're just not sure he will. He told us to trust him, but we're not sure that we can trust him to do what he said because we're not sure. But if a doctor says, take this compound, write a prescription, the druggist can't tell you what it is because it's too many big words you couldn't understand. It's like drinking the back of Diet Pop. What's in a Diet Pop? Just read it. And then go, oh, I can't, and you get done with it. But you'll take it. Obey my voice. And you will be my God, and I will do whatever you tell me, and you'll take that thing. If he said, you better move to Arizona, I don't care how much you love where you are, you move to Arizona. If he tells you you got to get rid of something in your house, you'll get rid of it. And yet God Almighty has a book he's had for centuries. And that book has been opened before us thousands of times in church or some other way. And we just stare at it. Yeah, well, I don't know about that. And then when you stand in a pulpit and you preach, you can trust God. And if you're not, you're failing God. And people say, he's too hard. Hard. Let me tell you what's hard. What's hard is when time is over and time shall be no more. And you're standing there at the great judgment bar. And he says, I never knew you. Now that is hard. How could you prevent that from happening? Would you not say, declare unto me the word of the Lord? Don't spare my feelings. Don't court my favor. Don't use me to make me feel good. You tell me the truth. I don't want to get to the end of my life and miss it. He says, if you will come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. What did he say he would be? I will be a Father unto you, you shall be my children, and it shall be well with you. Shouldn't I want that? Shouldn't I? Shouldn't our church preach that? Shouldn't hopefully that be a conviction of my heart? And if we preach it and God honors it, should it not become a conviction of everybody's heart in this room? So that by this conviction of the Almighty God and our surrender to Him, He begins to transform us and change us into something that honors Him? Of course. That's why we preach the Word. But if I play games with your head, tell you stories, I don't know how they get by with it, but they do. And begin to just preach little light things to make you happy so we can get a chuckle or two out of you this morning. And good old brother Tom, he's so funny. What do you get from that? Amusement? And yet if you begin to talk about the fear of God, working out your salvation, it's not easy with fear and trembling. I don't know anybody does that. Maybe the day is coming in which as I said a couple of weeks ago, you begin to examine yourself, you begin to look at yourself, and you see what God sees when he shows you what he sees, and it's not what he wants. 
I think there's going to be this intense commitment to God. In the last days, I do. That man is going to be on his face before God, turning away from this world and turning unto God. There's only one true God. He is the almighty God. He is the one true God. He is the only true God. There is nobody else. Only God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the only God who ever has been. He's the only one who sees, sees all, knows all, can speak, is always present. He is omniscient. He knows everything that can be known. There is nothing knowable that God does not know. From the hairs of your head to the number of stars in the sky, to how many steps you've taken in your life, how many times your heart is beat, how many drops of perspiration has fallen from your body, and how many times you've blinked your eyes. Who would know that? It's not knowledge that we need every day, but it's known because he's omniscient. Our God is omnipotent, omnipotent. You know what potent is? Omni means all, all powerful, omnipotent. I can come to him as he begins to reveal himself to me as all powerful and there is no other God and who can stop his hand? Nothing is too hard for him. We sang that song, we take the word hard and put difficult. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Great and mighty God. That's who we're serving. That's who we're here to honor. He doesn't have a form, a picture that we can see. Uh, nobody took a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the only representation of the invisible God there is. Hebrews 1 says he is the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact likeness of God's person. And yet God remains God. He remains spirit. God is spirit. He is at all times everywhere, omnipresent, all presence. God has to go nowhere to be there. He's already there everywhere, in your closet, in your room with you. When you're by yourself thinking and doing, he knows what you're thinking. He knows your thoughts. He knows the motivations of your heart. You stop and think about it. God is bigger than life because he is life. He's the God of all the universe. And he has manifested himself and revealed himself to us so we can identify with him because I can't identify with spirit, but I can't identify with Jesus who was in all points tempted like I am, yet without sin. He has shown us that a man can live in this world. He does not have to sin. He told more than one person, go and sin no more. Must be possible. Oh, we have to sin. No, who taught you that? God didn't. If we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, to be sure. But we're not supposed to take liberties with sin. We're supposed to overcome. That's how we honor God making application of his word. We live this way because of who he is. We walk this way because of who he is. We talk this way because of who he is. 
And people think we're just, what, legalistic? Extreme? Did you all know you're extreme? Because you're taking it too far? Too far means you go past page one. That's too far. All the rest of this is too far. Too far. Our God is able to listen to our prayers. He listens to all of his people's prayer, his people, the people of God. He can hear all of them pray at the same time, individually. He doesn't hear everybody's prayer. The world prays that thousands or millions and maybe billions of people pray it. Their prayer's not heard. The prayer that's heard would be the prayer of a sinner. God have mercy on me, a sinner. If you're not walk with God and have no relationship with God, what makes you think he has a relationship with you? Does he walk around behind you sad that you won't acknowledge him? If you just ask me something, I'll do it for you. Doesn't work. Jeremiah said, you don't want to obey my voice. He said, when they pray, I will not hear you. And he told Jeremiah, I said, don't pray for these people. I won't hear them. If Moses and Noah prayed for these people and Job, I still wouldn't listen. See, see, there's a point that you can turn away. There's a point in which people refuse God. Their opportunity in this world doesn't include God and his way. Churches are full of people like this. They have nothing. He is a myth. But to those who pray earnestly and seek his face, he listens. He hears what you say. He is our help in time of need. He said, come boldly to this throne you can't see. It's all by faith. You've got to believe all of this. Come boldly to the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy to help in time of need. You can do that. What other God can say that? What institution of man can promise you that? Name anything that exists that ever has existed. If you put all the gods and all the totem poles, even our American Indian. That represents some kind of a God. Put them all together and pray to all of them, and the best they can do is fall over when the wind goes. They're not gods. They're wood. All the branches that were on those good pieces of wood kept somebody warm. They burned half the God up, and then they worshiped the other half of the tree, I, I suppose. God is sovereign. I like that. He is a sovereign God over all of creation. Remember that verse in Daniel? And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say unto him, what are you doing? None can stay his hand. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He has created it. He measured it out. With dust in the palm of his hand, the dimensions of the earth. And there it is. He's the almighty God. He created all that is. He oversees all that is. There is nothing that gets past his judging eye, not a thing. And here we are today with such a God offering himself to us. I will go with you in my presence and all my might and my power, my omnipotence, my protection, 
all the victories that you're going to need in life to overcome, all the healings that you're going to need and all the health that's, that's going to come to pass, all the security that you're going to want and, and the peace that delivers you from fear, plus the faith that he has to have for do that, he gives you that too. Who else can do that? And he walks with me and he talks with me. It's a wonderful song if it was just true for enough people. But listen, it's true for somebody. It's going to be true for somebody. If nobody here, there's somebody somewhere it's going to be true for. Or it's going to be true for a lot of people here. My prayer is that everybody here, the whole gang of us. I pray every day for my family, for my children and my grandchildren every day. That every one of us will go to heaven. I pray for my whole family to go to heaven. Because my grandkids are my kids. One of them said to me once, you're not my daddy. I might as well be because I'm the clan leader. (laughs) Just kidding, of course. I will walk among you and I will be your God. And Shelbyville, you shall be my people. And how will it be known in Shelbyville or wherever you folks live, how will it be known that I am your God except that I go with you? I am with you. I make the difference in your life. I'm the one that brings you the peace and the joy and the victory and the healing and the health. I am the one who is in the secret place of the Most High who shall cover you with his pinions. And no evil shall befall you, and no plague will come nigh your dwelling. For he, our God, shall give his angels charge over you, and they will keep you in all your ways. Who else can do that? My prayer, God, make that have a deep meaning in our individual hearts so that every day we acknowledge you as our God and honor you with our life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, as you have challenged us to break away from the systems of this world that you must judge, continue to show us the good and fruitful reasons why we should. Continue to show us the hopelessness in this age without God. Continue to make us mindful of who you are every day. And I do pray, Lord, that everybody in our church, just like you told Timothy, if you will give yourself to the reading of this word, the study of this word, and to the doctrine, to the teaching, you not only will save yourself, but all those that hear you. Lord, let that be so true here. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.